0: Thank you so much. Good morning. We're going to be turning in our Bibles now to Acts chapter 18. And we're going to be looking at verse 1 down through um, verse 17 this morning. What I'm going to be reading to you is from verse 1 down through verse 11. The Apostle Paul has made his way, you see, from Athens, and he's making his way furthermore into Corinth, which is kind of like making your way from Boston to New York City. Boston's kind of like the academic capital, while New York City is the financial district. And that's really the connection, or the comparison, if you will, between Athens and Corinth and the way in which they related to one another. And by that time in which Paul was ministering, well, in the eyes of the public in Greece, Corinth had now exceeded and surpassed the Athenians in the way in which they were influencing the culture. Well, I'm going to pick it up now in verse 1. We're going to find in these words of this 18th chapter, Luke the physician writing, that after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a, a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. You can almost hear Paul sing fearless at this point. He's got Silas with him now, so they can sing together, you see. But go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God. Among them, so we're going to explore these words together. We're going to see how this relates to modern day life. We're going to relate all of this, what was penned in that first century, to where we stand right now in the midst of 2020, and ask God to give the guidance we need for the times which we live. As we look to our Lord together now in prayer, Father, as in first service. So it is now in second service, whether it be physically present in this building or via live stream, we're asking is that a very, very powerful movement of the Holy Spirit take place within our hearts, allowing us to be able to see things perhaps we've never seen before in your Word. finding ways to apply what we're learning here and strategic ways to make a difference in the times in which we live. In my, what times in which we live. Unique, distinct, but allowing us, Father, now to find new ways, creative ways, to be able to take the timeless truths and communicate them in timely ways. Not necessarily being traditional, Instead, finding ways of being creative, innovative, looking for new strategic opportunities to be able to share what it is that you've done, where Jesus Christ died on that cross and three days later was raised from the grave. So, Father, these moments together are significant. They're important. They're weighty. They're yours. Warm these hearts Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. So again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the car together, and we're pulling up near an intersection, and you spot it, I spot it. Oh there's something about the theology of a bumper sticker isn't there. And there you have it. Because right there on that bumper sticker it reads In times of unrest remember God is still God. Let me say it again. In times of unrest remember Brothers and sisters in Portland, Oregon, right now, God is still God. Because what God delights to do is to take timeless truths and apply them to turbulent situations, and Paul was in the midst of a turbulent situation. The Roman Empire at this point was beginning to show signs of anti-Semitism, periodic, Episodic, selective in various regions. But as you're going to see in the opening verse, it's beginning to happen. And as it's happening now, there's going to be dislocation of people. And with the dislocation of people, there is this new sense of unrest. And the question is, how do you minister effectively? How do you live effectively? How do you function effectively in times of unrest? And those are the questions now that we're going to address in these verses, all 17 of them all in all. And what I want to do is to draw three significant observations for bumper sticker people. People who are able to look at one another and be able to say, in times of unrest, remember, God is still God. Paul needed that memory be stoked once again. Now, the first observation comes out of verses 1 down through verse 4, and we're going to put it like this, that as we consider God's sovereignty, God's in control, you see, God's sovereignty in times of unrest, start here by noting with me the strategic relationships that God forges, the strategic relationships that God forges. You might be connecting with somebody online. They have just processed this teaching. And now they're beginning to rethink the way they go about doing things, the way they go about living. All of a sudden, a new relationship is forged as you go back and forth in communication with one another. Something that might not have taken place just a year ago. A new connectedness, new ways of communicating old truths. And here's Paul. And we are told here in verse 1 that Paul left Athens. He didn't leave Athens alone, because if you have your Bible open at this point, you will notice that in the last verse of the prior chapter, as he was leaving Athens, some men joined him, believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And, of course, in Athens, great food there. And so you take your kebabs, take your gyros, by all means, take some honey with you. It's the ultimate. And as you make your way from Athens now into Corinth, you and I, we're we're taking the Roman road system. And as we make our way there, you go on and take a look at the map. Pull out your GPS. Paul did, I'm sure. And as he did, what I want you to be able to see here at this point is that the Apostle Paul is finding a new way to be able to communicate strategic thoughts in the culture in which he finds himself. And so now he has made his way out of Turkey. He's made his way across into Europe, stop at Philippi, where he was incarcerated, on over to Thessaloniki, as the natives there would call it today. And there, once again, he faced opposition onwards, southwards, towards Berea. Berea is where these noble people were opening up the scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying was consistent with what they were finding in the Older Testament as Paul relayed the promises of the Older Testament to Jesus in declaring that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And now he then made his way furthermore onwards towards the Athens, the academic center of Greece. And then from there, it's like moving from Boston to New York. Why you'd want to move from Boston to New York, I really don't know. I prefer staying in Boston. But nonetheless, he went from Athens to Corinth at that point. And as he did so, he set up camp in the New York City of Greece. The, the business sector, the Manhattan of it all, you see. Commerce, trade, And my, is this a strategic place for ministry to unfold. And there, as he has left Athens, made his way to Corinth with his kebabs and his gyros and his jar of honey, what he's done is he's entered into Athens' rival, Corinth. I wonder at this time what Dionysius is saying to himself. What the Mars are saying to themselves, we're Athenians. And here's Corinth, which has now surpassed our, our native city in prominence and influence. But what Paul is going to have to do is to keep his team together. Keep them tight. Good leaders do that sort of thing, you know. And so there they are in Corinth, and now what happens captures our attention. You're on to verse because in verse 2, he found a Jew, which means he's proactive. He's an initiator, which is what leaders are all about. He found a Jew, the name was Aquila, which comes from a root word meaning eagle. This man's sword, you see, sword. soared. He's a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, and the question is why? And Here's your answer. The answer is because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. In other words, burgeoning anti-Semitism. We saw it in prior chapters in the book of Acts. Paul bumped into it. And now here he is, because like Tiberius, an earlier emperor, Claudius expelled the Jewish community from Rome. It's tracked somewhere, traced somewhere to around A.D. 49 or so. Uh, A writer by the name of Suetonius wrote about this, in fact, a historical account. And so now, bear in mind that you've got Aquila, you've got Priscilla, they've been uprooted, unrest, dislocated from their homes, having to go across the waters into Greece, a new beginning. Some of us are having to find new ways, create new ways of approaching things in the midst of this season of pandemic that we're in. You might feel a bit dislocated, in fact, relationally, emotionally. What do you do when you got to start over? Paul now, as a leader, he's going to Match the people who have come from Athens with the people who have just come from Rome. And he's going to have to bring a sense of unity in the midst of this diversity, which is always a test of leadership, you know, whether you're chairing a committee or a board. Here now is Paul, and he's pulling together his team. It's growing in number. They've come here because Claudius has commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He went to see them. He is a proactive person. And I would argue that in times of unrest, God needs, God wants people who love Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to be proactive, finding new ways to be able to connect people to one another and to minister for God's glory. Teamwork. Now, I know that at Alabama, Nick Sabin's the current head coach, but in a prior era, The name was Bear Bryant, and Bear Bryant was a renowned historic figure in college football. He wrote of himself in these terms, I'm just a plow hand from Arkansas, but I've learned how to hold a team together, how to lift some men up, how to calm down others until finally they've got one heartbeat together as a team. There's just three things I'd ever say. If anything goes bad, I did it. If anything goes semi-good, we did it. If anything goes real good, you did it. And that's all it takes to get people to come together and be a team. Now, in the midst of unrest, what we would want to be able to do to our teammates, for our teammates, is turn to one another and say, in times of unrest, remember, God is still God. But there I can imagine you've got Aquila, there you've got Priscilla, and they're saying, but we feel so dislocated, vocationally, relationally. Maybe they've even had to say goodbye to some loved ones. Why God? You ever been in that situation? I feel so dislocated, disconnected from the current events of life. Things were so different two years ago. Why God? But one of my favorite stories addresses that question. Some of you might know it. When Jill Briscoe wrote, that Stuart and I were sitting in a meeting in Capernaum Hall in England, listening to Joan Thomas speak at the celebration of her 80th birthday. She was addressing the international staff of the Capernaum Missionary Fellowship, which is still one of the most vibrant youth ministries in the world, a place Stuart and I were privileged to serve for 11 years before moving to the U.S. in 1970. A nostalgic moment. An inspiring moment. Joan got up to speak. Speak on many of the questions she had growing up. (coughs) Among them, why did my daddy die when I was 12? Leaving a large family for my mother to raise. Why were we so poor? Why, when I was married, was there a war going on and why did my husband have to be sent to the front lines to fight it? And why, when God spared my husband's life and bought, we bought the youth center, did he have to travel most of the time, leaving me to raise our children? And why did I have to be the mother who sat in worship services all alone, so often going to soccer matches all alone, So much so that people thought I was a widow. But then then she changed gears. You can almost see the smile on Jill Briscoe's face as she writes what comes next. Laughing, she said, the wonderful thing about getting older is you stop asking why. And you start saying, oh, that's why. That's why we were poor. So I would know how to stretch the food for the guests in the early post-war years. That's why God took my daddy home. So I could see how my mother managed with grace and power to raise her children without a father. There are so many that wise when you get old. It's just wonderful. At the cross, you can imagine the wise. We followed him. We put our trust in him. We had confidence in him. Why? And then three days later, Oh, that's why. What I want you to be able to do in this time of pandemic is to be able to bring the, Oh, that's why. Every time the question of why percolates in your mind at the late night hours, when you feel so challenged job-wise, when you feel so tested relationally, when it seems as though things are coming apart, ponder the one who puts things together. Ah, oh. And then you look at the bumper sticker and you smile that in times of unrest, you're remembering. God. God is still God. And so now there's Aquila and there's Priscilla. And now they're being fit together in a team with people from Athens. They're learning a sense of unity. They're learning a sense of how to produce unity in the midst of diversity. Where do you find a new sense of oneness? And the answer is in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Check out verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Try to persuade Jews and Greeks. Can you imagine that? So they're watching, they're observing, they're soaking it up. So that's why I had to cross the sea. That's why I set up shop in a new setting. I was comfortable in Rome, but weren't we comfortable before the pandemic? Have you pondered that God is not necessarily out to make us comfortable? in this world but make us rather conformable to his will within this world and right when you think you got a plan god disrupts the plan and you have a an aquila and priscilla moment where dislocation occurs judson wanted to go to india But his course was changed and he went to Burma instead where he was incarcerated for seven years. He was persecuted for his faith. But as a result, people in that region saw his scars and they returned to the Lord because here's a man courageous enough to share the gospel, even though things in life were going against him. Livingston. He was 12 years of age when he heard, read an appeal for missionaries going to China. wanted to go there, but then the Opium War broke out. wasn't allowed to go. But you see, he wasn't an either-or thinker. He was what I'll call a third-way thinker. Robert Moffat was in England at that time, telling of the South African missionaries. and Livingston was interested in Moffat's story. He said, what's the use of waiting for the end of the Opium War in China? I'm going to go instead to Africa. And so God led him to Africa. He addressed the slave trade. He shared the gospel. If you ever walk through Westminster Abbey, Stop at the place where Livingston is honored. You're struck with the fact that God takes people who feel so dislocated in the challenges of life and creates new ways to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's Paul. Why, in verse 3, he had found, you see, Aquila and Priscilla, and they, well, they were of the same trade. And so he stayed with them. They worked. They were tent makers. In other words, they were skilled in leather. And if you look at the Roman road system, what you will find is that they were well skilled then to be able to meet the needs of people who um, you don't want to go to a hotel, you want to go to a hotel in that day and age. So they were able to sell tents, and people would set up their tents. And now they're able then to protect themselves. In fact, take a good hard look at the road leading into Corinth. This is where shops would have been set up. This is where Aquila and Priscilla would have joined Paul. I can almost see the plaque over the door of Priscilla and Aquila's tent making business. And there, Paul's got an adjoining shop, you see. And together now, they're able to deal with the comings and goings of people because not only are people crossing by land, they're crossing by sea. So they're coming into Corinth from Rome dislocated people. But furthermore, because of the Roman road system, they now have positioned themselves, because of their skill in the trades, to be able to offer people what they need at that time. And as they offer people what they need at that time, meeting a felt need, the result is they can go for their ultimate need, the need to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, in times of unrest, when you got some bumper sticker theology floating around out there, what you need to be able to do then is to position yourself strategically, even on the internet, to be able to find ways of moving from felt need to ultimate need and draw their attention to the one who died on the cross. Three days later, raised from the dead. You've done that. You're doing that. You're creative. And so you're on then with me, aren't you? And to the second observation we find here where the first was well the strategic relationships that God forges, well the second is the significant promise that God provides. And Pick it up now with me in verse 5. Silas and Timothy arrive. So now we've got Silas and Timothy coming down from Verea. That's how they pronounce it in Greece, you see. They're becoming also part of the team and I can just imagine now Paul and Silas in particular and they're telling Quill and Priscilla you wouldn't believe what happened in Philippi. We were saying so poorly at night there was an earthquake. The result was the prison door swung open you see we were able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It was a time of unrest but in the time of unrest people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior including the jailkeeper. I can just imagine now Aquila and Priscilla's eyes getting real big. The team's expanding. The team's growing. Some of the team from Rome, some of the team from Berea and Greece, others from Athens. Paul is going to have to find a way to tighten it, make it happen. Oneness, that's what leaders do. Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. What are we told that Paul was doing at that point? It's a very intensive word. Paul was occupied with the word. Is that good? Just like we are right now. Got my Bible right, wide open. Invested in. You internalize, you externalize. Inward processing, so there's um, outward processing. The word. And what is he doing in that strategic setting, there's a synagogue there. And he's testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. How? With the Old Testament open, of course. And so he might be in Psalm 22 and pondering the significance. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In linking Psalm 22, verse 1 to what was uttered on the cross of Jesus by Jesus Christ. And then there's Isaiah, chapter 53, the suffering servant chapter, one of the great chapters of the Old Testament. And then he merges it with Psalm 22, which deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could just imagine, There's a, you could hear a pin drop. They're leaning forward. Are they agreeing? Just because you communicate truth doesn't mean that people are going to buy in. Check out verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentile go to the Gentiles so his principle was of course from the Jew first and also to the Gentile so from verse 6 to verse 7 we see that very thing unfolding and he left there you see and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice Titius Justice the status and Clearly Latin name of Titus Justice. Identifies him as a Roman citizen. Part of the Roman culture. Because Corinth was both Greek and Roman in this time period. Might have been part of the highly respected Roman families. He went to Titius Justice. Worshipper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. So I can imagine what kind of irritant Paul was now. They're coming out of the synagogue, and there's Paul and Titus out raking leaves. As they're raking leaves, they're pondering, here's this man who's claiming that three days later, Jesus was validated as Messiah by being raised from the dead, and he had such a great impact at this point that, check out verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. What I want you to be able to see at this point is that in times of unrest, there is tremendous value in what I'll call third-way thinking. Not simply either-or, but rather finding new ways, third ways, creative ways to be innovative in times such as these those that follow the Olympics know the name Jean-Claude Keeley. I remember watching him ski. He he worked hard, he worked harder, he seemed to work the hardest, and yet he was having a hard time getting ahead when it came to positioning himself to be considered a, a great skier. But then he realized something. The biographer tells us that he realized instinctively that simply training harder wasn't enough. So Keeley began challenging the basic theories of racing theories and techniques. Each week, he would try something different to see if he could find a better way, faster way down the mountain. His experiments resulted in a new style of skiing, Almost the exact opposite of the traditional approach. Interesting. Involved skiing with his legs apart, not together, for better balance. Sitting back, not forward, on the skis when he came to a turn. And he used his ski poles, the biographer tells us, in an unorthodox, non-traditional way, to propel himself as he skied. The writer states the explosiveness of the new style helped Keeley's racing time dramatically. And in 66, 67, he captured virtually every skiing trophy, and the next year won three gold medals in the Winter Olympics. And when asked what he learned, he was able to say, I had to break with tradition and find new ways creative ways to be able to accomplish what needed to be done. Now, in times of pandemic, find new ways in order to do what needs to be done. Paul does it. And so now he's processing. You're processing. And you're up to verse 9. And it's late at night and you're thinking things through, and you're doing your review of the day and your preview of the coming day, and sometimes in days such as these, when it seems as though life is heavy, you need a good dose of the Lord. God breaks in. And the Lord said to Paul in verse 9, one night in a vision, do not be afraid. That's why we're saying fearless. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you, God said to Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, which is what he wants to say to you. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you. even for those who've experienced extraordinary loss in life. For those of us that feel so dislocated in life. There's no social distancing with God. I am with you, is what he said. He went on to say, no one will attack you. A very personal statement to Paul at this point. Who must feel threatened after all that he's gone through in terms of opposition in prior settings. I have many people in the city who are my people. With that, he is reinvigorated. And this man who considers two days in one setting too long for any setting stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's a lifetime for Paul. But as he does this, he's doing this in the vicinity of what? Take a look at the temple of Apollo that appears on the screen. Because there in the vicinity of Apollo, false spirituality, Paul is proclaiming truth as Francis Schaeffer would call it, true spirituality. And so there is a conflict of spiritualities. And so he confronts the substitute gods of Greece with the authentic sovereign God of the universe who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He's there, you see, for a year and a half, and they're soaking it up and they're processing what he has to say. And he's reinvigorated, you see, because God broke in during the night. And he had one of those moments, you see, where he's able now to address the fears of life head on. During his years as a premier in the old Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the who was the leader of the Soviet Union, he didn't, began denouncing many of the policies and atrocities of a predecessor, Stalin. And once as he censored Stalin in a public meeting, Khrushchev was interrupted. Someone began to shout out, You were one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Who said that asked Khrushchev. An agonizing silence followed. No one spoke. And then Khrushchev replied quietly. Now you know why. Fear kicks in and you're prone to say, Why? Am I going through what I'm going through? And then you go to the empty tomb and you say, oh, that's why. You're up now to verse 12. As you make your way, you see, to verse 12, you're in for the third observation. The surprising interruptions that God uses in our lives. You think you know what's going to happen, and along comes coronavirus. You think you know what's going to happen, and all of a sudden there's unrest on the streets. You got a plan all mapped out, and all of a sudden, a verse 12 kicks in. And when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and he was highly esteemed in history, so we're told, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they're the religionists, not the secularists. He's a Jew, they're a Jew, but they turn on him. They made a united attack on Paul and brought him, you see, before the tribunal, saying, this man's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about... When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if, I, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Stop right there. Did you see it? Paul was about to open his mouth. The secularist breaks in and interrupts. What is God doing? using a secularist. And how is it that God interrupts? I'm pondering that on my riding lawnmower on this day of September 22nd, looking back days prior, thinking about the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away. And I'm getting these texts, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do, looking at your text while Being on your writing lawnmower, you see. So finally I said, enough's enough's enough. And um, they're coming in from various places. And so I thought, you know something? This is now September 22nd. She died September 18th. I need to send an email to all the ministry leaders of this church. Finance committee, deacon board, elder board, Staff and so on, so forth. Hi, team. I emailed them on September 22nd. Be in prayer. Be in prayer for the selection of the nominee for the Supreme Court. Pause. Who would ever construct such a scenario weeks before an election? Back to the email. The decision is being made in the coming days with an announcement to be made this weekend. And if indeed it turns out to be Amy Coney Barrett, the judge I frequently reference, or Barbara Lagoa, we will be encountering a potentially transformational moment in the history of the pro-life movement. Because as we know, like Justice Bullock and later Antonin Scalia, and now Judge Barrett, they hold to the philosophy of originalism and how you go about interpreting the Constitution, you see. God breaks in. How do you explain this? I'm standing in Greece at the judgment seat, the Bema seat appears on the screen. Look at it. As you're standing there, you're saying to yourself, God broke in. Where's your Bema seat? you got certain places in your life where you say, that's where God broke in. Tie it all together now. Here comes. Back to Gallio. Since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see it to yourself. I refuse to be a judge over these things, the secularist says to the religionists. He drove them from the tribunal. Drove them away from that setting that had appeared on the screen. And they all seized instead, because everybody's looking for a substitute when they want to vent, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Oh, in such times of unrest, there are such emotionalized responses to things. What we need are strategic Thinkers who are proactive in the midst of such things. Gallio paid no attention to any of this. But God was watching. Where are we at today? You're standing with me and my tour guide, our tour guide, a group of about 40. And we're standing at the very edge of one side of this canal. And we're looking down. And we're saying to yourself, aha. That's how you get That's how you get the cargo to go from east to west. The movements, you see. So there can remain a very strong, vibrant business community in their form of New York City there in Greece. The Corinthian Canal of today. And what does Corinth look like today? There's Corinth. And as you look at it, you see the waters. You can see by land, by sea. Because of the unique positioning, the strategic setting, Paul now is going to begin wrapping up his European tour, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now he has reached the epicenter of Europe at that time, outside of Rome, with the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Three days later, Raised again, and you look at it and you say, why? Oh, that's why. For you see, in times of unrest, remember, God is still God. Let's stand together. So, Father, simple observations, changeless times, no, changing times. We wish the times could be changeless when we want them to be, but they're changeable. So what we do, Father, is we bring changeless truths to changing times. And we look at the strategic relationships that perhaps we could never have anticipated entering into. We ponder the significant promise, I'm with you. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. And then we spot our Bema seats. The surprising interruptions of life where, frankly, that's perhaps not the interruption of my life that I wanted. But someday, someday, Father, instead of saying why, we're going to say, oh, that's why. But in the meantime, we're going to give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.